This is the Ad Nontech Podcast, conversations about education, technology, and culture, with Dr. Doug Reed and Dr. Matt Stranick. Thank you for joining us. My name is Dr. Doug Reed, and I am located on Abigway, the traditional and unceded territory of the Mi'kmaq people. My name is Dr. Matthew Stranick, and I am located in Manaquisk in St. John, New Brunswick, which is situated on the traditional and unceded territory of the Wulastukyuk Maliseet people. Wasn't quite recording yet. That is what Camtasia is for. It's one of the things. Welcome, welcome, everybody. Um, not that you know this, but uh, this is Saturday morning, part deux, uh, with us uh, here on the Ed Nontech podcast. Uh, as ever, joined by the most esteemed Dr. Doug Reed and the uh, less esteemed but more scarved, definitely more scarved, uh, Matt Stranick. How are you doing, Doug, in the past 15-odd minutes? I'm good. I'm good. I'm glad you repeated the scarved words, because if you were going to say more scarred with no F in there, I would say I'll throw down with you. Because I've got I've got scars and burns all over my body. Well, you are from Nova Scotia, so it kind of like they're a little bit rowdier out there, is what I've heard. So, yeah, yeah man. most of mine came when I was less than three. So, education for parents. What can you say, man? You're like double banged physically and otherwise. So, so, um, do tell, uh, because I have, I'm, I'm, I'm just, uh, I'm going to be on the, a part of the listener here. Uh, what are we about on this particular episode, Doug? We're going to talk about clear guidance in education. We're going to talk about how important it is to have clear instructions and clear directions and just clarity of thought. And I know people are like, well, obviously, of course, but it's not an obvious, of course, because look how often it doesn't happen. If common it, sense were as common as people say, then wouldn't more people act according to it? Uh, to paraphrase somebody, common sense, not so common, right? That's exactly yeah, where we're coming from. That's that's what we're going to take a look at and how vitally important it is for a learner. And especially as lifelong learners like us, as soon as we get lost, we end up, we go off on tangents when we're on target. Imagine the tangents we go on if we didn't really understand where we were headed and what the target was. There's a, to, to, for, for those who uh, want the educationalist, uh, verbiage on this because I definitely know that the majority of our audience is tuning in for the 10 cent words. Um, we are talking, of course, repeat your concept there, bud. Sorry, I had to cough. It was clear guidance in education. Yeah. Making, ex- making uh, the implicit explicit, Right scaffolding the way between an educational idea and an educational action. Um, Clarity, if you will, Um, something that I have been actively thirsty for in my own lack, I suppose, of clear direction um, at certain points in my life, not that long ago. Um, The search for clarity has driven me in all kinds of tangents, um, 
throw out to Marcus Aurelius Meditations, reading it for the third time, first time in 2024. Um, and uh, yeah, I just, uh, again, you think like uh, it's it's going to be just the, the bread and butter of any educational exercise, uh, but it is often uh, confoundingly lacking. Confoundingly lacking is what it is, in my experience. Highly subjective and contextually embedded, though it is. So there we go. There's the educationalist slant, making the implicit explicit. So um, why don't you tell me more about the personal impetus for this, pal? Before we even go there, the way you described that was so wonderful, and you used all those 10-cent words. It's almost like you have a doctorate in the field or something. I want to be clear that people love the 10-cent words. It's not just punk t-shirts and tattoos and shit with me. It's, I got some legitimate stuff, 10 some words, right? Yeah. No, I just thought it was lovely. And I thought you should go do a doctorate in this field just in case you didn't already have one. I read about a guy, I read about a scientist. Okay. Who like, I just, I, I was reading about science. I don't even remember necessarily why, but I was like reading a Wikipedia article about this esteemed professor of the history of science. So this dude was such a genius, such a super genius. He did like, and we're talking back in the fifties, did a doctorate, you know, just in his science area, PhD in his science area. But he couldn't, he he was like, he came from a poor background. He like couldn't get the kind of positions that he wanted because he was kind of socially unhouse trained uh, is the word that came up in the, and so the dude actually did a second PhD and moved to America. Can you imagine doing a second doctorate, Doug? That just fractures my mind. Uh, and then, and then the dude, scientist, gentleman, scholar, who put out these fascinating theories about the history of science, which I skimmed briefly on Wikipedia. Um, it's like he died when he was 61. He just like heart attack, visiting his niece for her, her wedding and just, 61. I mean, that's young, in my opinion, in like old people years, 61. I'm like, I can see that from here. I can totally see that from here, 61. And, you know, it's like if he had known he was going to die at 61, would he have bothered with the second PhD? I don't know. Hypotheticals. Sorry, dude. Rich with the tangents on this one. Rich with the tangents. That reminds me, I, I met a person in Australia when I was doing mine. He was working on his second, and I'm like, why? And basically, his parents were rich, and he didn't have to work, so he needed to do something. So I understand doing that, but I don't I don't know if you ever saw the movie Thor Ragnarok. I did because I have kids and, uh, you know, Thor doesn't really stand up for me as like one of the most essential MCU films. But uh, do go on. There's a scene in that where Dr. Bruce Banner has been the Hulk for a couple of years and then turns back into Banner. And he's very self-conscious about his value. And he's like, how many PhDs does the Hulk have? Zero. How many PhDs does Banner have? Seven. And there was a meme that I read. I didn't copy the meme. It it went through and it was like, if you've ever wondered why people are so, why Bruce Banner is so angry. It's like, he has seven PhDs. Of course he's so angry. He's going to turn into the Hulk. (laughs) I would say that is an example of extremely lazy storytelling. Um, I think the Hollywood writers who like were agitating last year for a better deal. If you actually like, just like look, you just take any random page of a popular film and you like, look at like how dumb they think the audience is to just throw in like a piece of red meat. It's like, well, it's not enough to say that he's really smart. You know, one PhD, two PhDs, nah, seven Literally, 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 humanly impossible unless you do them right after one right after the other, starting when you're age 20. But do go on, you know, so. Well, there's another meme about that, about in um, in 
pop culture and comic books and, and all the rest where they talk about to the regular public, oh, that super villain has a PhD. That means he's really smart. And then to academics, oh, that super villain has a PhD. Academia drove him insane and evil. <laughs> so depending Shout on Shout out to Doctor Doom and legendary and now deceased rapper MF Doom. Okay? The rapper who impersonated who wore the Doctor Doom mask in public. Both of them. Oh. Much mad respect. I, I swear, man, you got it's gonna be it's not gonna be the musical entry for this episode because I've already established in the previous episode that this is a two-part Minneapolis special. The first dealing with the replacements, and now we're on to Whisker Do, even though I am wearing a replacements t-shirt. Um but but MC or MF Doom totally radical nerd uh, rap is all I can say. Total antidote for Kanye West or you know whatever fascism he's selling. Goodness me! Um, I guess we probably start. Oh, I'm going to jump to Glazer, 1961. Thank you. Learning and the technology of instruction. And uh, the quote from Glazer is, we speak of being informed, being told, being taught, being shown, or being given to understand. Isn't that the point of clarity? Like, Glazer's trying to come to grips with what what we're doing here in education and how technology can help us get there. And I really love being given to understand. Yes. That is my favorite turn of phrase in in the rest. Because you can tell me stuff, and I I might remember. There's there's that joke where if you ever want to tell your secret remember. to somebody, tell it to your husband. He's not listening anyway. <laughs> like that that kind of thing. But being given to understand helps me create my own knowledge. It it heads me in that direction, and that's what I really liked about it. And this is the earliest technology of instruction article that I could find that I could really dig in. Audio visual communication review. Jesus, I hope that publication is still in existence. I hope they're still publishing volumes. That's a radical uh, journal. Oh yeah. I, I don't know if it is, but it would be interesting to see. And if not, what did it turn into? Cause I'm assuming it morphed into a, a more modern name, but. Or a, or a wax cylinder for a phonograph, you know, <laughs> <laughs> just melted yep. into the background. Um, so, but that's, but no, man, but seriously, um, to sort of that notion of knowledge versus understanding, like, wow, that has confounded philosophers, smartest of the smart, allegedly going back to before common era. I mean, that is like yep. what Plato was, was about. I mean, they gave him the hemlock, because, among other things, he was encouraging independent thought by just such questions, um, which speaks to how old the human condition really is, that we're still dealing with this stuff from literally a couple thousand years ago. I mean, a blip in friggin' historical time, but in human history, the fact that we're still uncertain about this stuff and still finding lack of clarity and cognitive dissonance between this notion of knowledge, compartmentalizing certain pieces of information and understanding more of a synthetic function, right? Um, Taking those elements and turning them into something that's uh, personally, uh, contextually meaningful. So um, totally, man, that's, that's such a good stepping point for this episode right there, that first reference. And I'm going to jump back a couple of thousand years on your okay. BCE comment. Because you're I a classicist found- and I just throw in this stuff around willy-nilly. You're like almost <laughs> at a minor in classics, right? As I learned. Yeah. They have proof now that Stone Age toddlers had art lessons. That that article's being published right now. They've gone and found, you know, the, um, the, 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 hand, the paintings of hands and the way you could like spit paint and get the different colors and get the different textures and shapes and stuff. They have evidence that those kids needed to be taught how to do that. And here's the evidence of how they progressed while they were being taught. So 
Fantastic. I know it goes back way more than zero BCE. It it went back tens of thousands of years. Modern humans have existed, according to I think most scientific accounts. I mean, if we're talking just the modern body and with the modern sort of cognitive function, survival on the top, and then a subconscious mind sort of capable of sort of expanding as needed situationally. I think uh, we're talking something along the lines of about 30,000 years, right? In terms of like a modern sort of human with structures that we recognize. Um, and I think that even includes, you know, the cave paintings and stuff, right? I go in, so again, a blip when you consider that uh, Tyrannosauruses were stomping around like how how many millions of years ago are we talking on the dinosaurs, dude? Do you happen to know? Oh, or I won't I put you on the spot. But like if you were actually to say, well, roughly around how many million years? I think it was about a hundred by a T Rex. Are you gonna look it up now? At least. No, I'm not gonna look right. it up because I know okay. they were there for a lot longer. So then thirty thousand cave paintings compared to in the twenties of millions, exponentially more. And then like Oh yeah, AI. You know, Elon Elon Musk is going to put a, a port in my brain. People are signing up for that nonsense to get like a you know Musk implant, right? Um, people are like, I want to test that. I want to be part of that. The same people who like buy the fully automated electric cars. Read a saw a thing on the internet about a guy who like every time he got behind the wheel of his Tesla, put it on full auto. Full auto, let the thing drive itself. And, you know, he's just like, I'm just helping me out. I'm just helping the technology, like Elon says. I'm like, good Lord. 30,000 years of modern human history leading to you letting a billionaire, the richest person in the world, put a chip in your brain and drive your car for you. Good Lord. I mean, rant upon rant upon rant, but... uh Sorry, dude. <laughs> that, that reminds me of that um, that TV show which became movies, like that Jackass show from, is that the 90s? Jackass! Now you're talking my age demographic. Yeah, yeah, we're talking like mid to late 90s, but especially in like late 90s and early aughts. And even subsequently, I mean, they're still churning out content every few years in some way. But yeah. And it became, okay, what crazy thing are we going to do? Oh, get that guy to do it. That guy will do it. Shout and out to Steve-O, who has who a lively Instagram. And if you, he's never, never, nobody in Jackass world is ever going to watch this podcast. But thank you for <laughs> getting, you know, tennis ball shot into your face from a very, or baseball shot into your face from a very short distance just to see what the scar looks like. I mean, those people, like, Anyway, shout out to Jackass, shout out to Johnny Knoxville, shout out Steve-O, Wee Man, Bam Margera, I hope you're getting well. Apparently, I know a little bit about Jackass. <laughs> and I I heard the name. <laughs> I've never seen one. Johnny Knoxville <laughs> is a legit filmmaker. Steve-O is still doing crazy shit, um, except he's doing it in a healthy way. Um, and Bam Margera has come out of severe rehab and is maybe living a healthy lifestyle again. This is what I know from Instagram. And oh. I am ashamed that this has taken up space in my brain when it could like know something about the theory of relativity or science or how to do my taxes better or something. It's like, nah, we're going to dedicate some gray matter to jackass. Okay. <laughs> 30,000 years of human history leading to this, folks. Um, now, to get back to clarity in please, education. Please. In 2017, Hughes, Morris, Theron, and Benson released an article called Explicit Instruction. Historical so we're really going context. from the 60s to, like, the recent year. We're going, like, the very back, recent. Yeah. We're going back to the future, as it were, with this one. Sure. Almost. Yeah. Compared okay. to 1961. Yeah. Anywho, dude. And they talk about explicit instruction as being identified as a key component of current educational initiatives, such as a response to intervention. And the fact that somebody had to write that down 
drives me bonkers. It, it's a very good point. Yes, if you give explicit instruction, it works, especially if we're talking about the response to intervention, when it's, okay, you've done this, now where are you headed? Here's your feedback, here's, go do this. Oh, you did it, here's some interesting stuff for you, now what's next? And doesn't that sound like education? Very much so. (laughs) The fact that they had to write it down really made it interesting. And the reason they did is because they were they were researching and learning disabilities. Oh. And a lot of the research out there is for the straight on typical generic student. Right. And as soon as as soon as there's some type of something different. Non-conformity. Non yeah. yes. Then okay, here's a whole new avenue to keep exploring. How come all these other students get this type of instruction and this student, because they're different somehow, gets that? Well, if I may, I mean, to me, we've talked on the show at various times about uh, universal design for learning, UDL. So I think that's sort of almost like um, not necessarily a remedy to what you've described, but it's sort of like you have a cohort of students who have sort of quote unquote exceptionalities, quote unquote special needs. I mean, there's various terms for it, but we kind of know what I'm getting at here. Um, Designing for everybody in the first place, including, you know, so-called non-conformative students to the typical academic profile, that benefits everybody, right? It's like, you know, the, the, uh, the thing on uh, on the edge of a sidewalk where you you know it's it's sort of lowered sometimes where so like somebody with you know a wheelchair can get up a bit like ramps I mean ramps on the outside of buildings I mean that's UDL right it's like nobody's saying well I mean you know why do we need to put even put a ramp there or like why do we have a separate building for the people who need you know it's so UD I'm, I'm seeing UDL vibes here dude. And along with that, for me, is you were just talking about ramps. It's why do we use stairs in coming into a building? Why aren't they all ramps? Right? Because everybody can use the ramp. Right. Not everybody can use the stairs. Or is it just, oh, yeah, we figured a couple of thousand years ago stairs work. So we've always used the stairs. Don't you understand? We've always used the stairs. We're stair people. You're not a stair people. So I'm going to stare exactly. because you're not a stare person. Okay, I'm going to stare very intently. Like, might do a finger wag. You're not a stare person. All my people are stare people. And I, as, as as I read this use at all article, yeah, I think one of the points they were trying to make about explicit instruction was all students get value from it. Yes, I think that's where they came from. As I read the article what you took away from it sure and the fact that they had to write that down just i struggle with that because that's they've run across people where explicit instruction hasn't happened because it's one of those things i ended up in an encounter a secondhand encounter thankfully with a school psychologist who there was a a student in the school there were there were some problems there. And so everybody got called in one of those big group meetings. I wasn't in the meeting. Again, this Lord. is secondhand. And the student psychologist said, this child doesn't lie. Children don't lie. So whatever that child's saying is true. Yes. And all the adults around the room are like, are you on drugs? There's, there is no way that child is absolutely lying. No, no, they're innocent. Childs don't lie. And it's like, yes, they do. That research is out there. That's established. But the fact that they had to write down and instruction is good. <laughs> Again, it's I know like, I'm belaboring. It's, it's, a really, it's, it's, it's one of those things like the earth is round. Uh, oxygen goes into your lungs and comes out. Uh, it's, it's just sort of, it should, it, 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 I, I get you, but it's, 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 it's one of those, right? It's it, like, it is 
it's one 30, of those. 30,000 ish years of human history and how far we haven't come, really. And that's, that's it. People have a little bit of power and they've got control of something and they're holding on to that control until people have to argue against it to say, are you kidding me here? I'm thinking of certain educational administrators when you say that, Doug, that I've worked with that's, in the past. Yeah, entrenched I might be. points, entrenched practices. I got a six-figure job at a public university in Canada, for instance, right? <laughs> for instance. Yeah, no education degree to speak of, but it's all good. Educational enterprise. Who needs an education credential? Good Lord. Overlap between the last episode, folks. If somehow you haven't checked the last one, you can defer to my rant from the previous episode. Okay? There. I bumped the rant that I was going to make into uh, just go check out the rant from the other one. I'm trying to get some efficiencies here, dude. Is there anything else you wanted to say about this one before we get into um, this other fantastic resource from Abelis, Gofi, and Les Lavasser? Yes. I just wanted to ask a question about us as learners. Okay. Do you enjoy having an educator, an instructor, a prof, or whatever, whatever it is, and you walk away from from a class or from a lesson saying, what the hell was that? What am I supposed to do? And just being boggled because it's nothing but convoluted it's it's just so are you saying that no con- is, is the problem in this hypothetical purely hypothetical case the problem that the content is off or that the format is off or that there's no pedagogical thought linking the two yeah yes to all three of those things yes to all three okay yes well to all three in that purely hypothetical situation um, I can fairly say that definitely accounted for a lot of my undergraduate time, even though I didn't have like the terminology in mind to sort of classify it as such. Um, and master's degree, again, um, I found people were in my program within the master's because I did a course-based degree. Everybody was actually pretty mercenary about it. And everybody at that point is an educator. So not as much. Again, doctoral program, I had some ex- experiences almost entirely good, but occasionally you have the, I, I, I did have, you know, one person teaching in an educational technology program who just refused to accept my final paper because she kept hammering me on like APA. Um, and I was just like, I'm sitting, and I, and I was like, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an English teacher. I'm a writing teacher at this point. And I'm like sitting in a friggin' bar at a hotel in Dubai where I'm like, I was a sorry family. I'd like to join you at the pool. I was supposed to have this paper turned in like two weeks ago, but this woman keeps bouncing, I mean, professor, whatever, kept throwing it back to me and like making a point out of like, Every and I'm like, you get, it was just it was it was cognitive dissonance at its highest. I gotta say, but eventually I made it to the pool. So, but shaking my head, and that was like the only time in the doctoral program where I think this person is coming after me with a certain kind of intellectual prejudice, and in in their their assessment and evaluation here is like in no it's it's punitive. Like they wouldn't just let me like pass it in and just like take off 10 points because they didn't, you know, like my references. And I just so, again, clear instruction or lack thereof. I get you, pal. And thanks for the question. Yeah, no, no worries. It's just I always hated it myself. And that nitpicky garbage, like with APA, now with the tools that are out there, you really don't need it. No, you don't. Um, it's it's just it's one of those things where when somebody kind of decides, I'm going to give this student the gears, um, and even if they're not formulating it in that way, I mean, the whole, the cult of nitpickery, if I can put it that way, 
is just rampant in academia. And it's almost like, well, I can't find any flaws with the content, so I'm just going to, you know, sort of go for where I can find flaws and speak to that. Eventually, it's like, this is no longer a quality assurance process. This is just like, you know, projection of an ego vis-a-vis assessment and evaluation. And I really had a hard, you know, time in that particular circumstance. I still remember it. That was like the one time where I really thought I just like, maybe I'm not cut out for this, not because the content was hard, not because the amount of work, but because the mindset was just something that I could not, you know, rationalize in that particular. No, it was just. It was a time in an otherwise fantastic experience, generally with University of Calgary Workland School of Education. So shout out to my alma mater, minus, you know, perhaps one particular instructor. So. And I look at those people with that, like, randomly pedantic scrutiny. Randomly pedantic scrutiny. I think we may have a podcast or a phrase of the podcast here, dude. Yeah, I mean, I can, that's, I can that's, that that's, 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 that's like that, that's going on the T-shirt. I don't care how <laughs> you were taught. And then random pedantic scrutiny on the back. Might have to get a, uh, you know, um, QR code to go with that link to the podcast. So, I mean, but, now. But you, if you use, but if you use RefWorks or EndNote or any of those, or even go to NightSite, that goes away. Right. Like that, that is a skill that can now be automated. And what learning really happened? You learned you didn't care for that person. You, you didn't learn. You, it didn't stop you from getting your terminal it, degree. It was it was it was even like it, be, it went beyond like what goes on the reference list. Yeah. Citation format. And again, I know it's important to signify properly and like the language and the use of the comments. And this person knew clearly very well that I taught English and that this person, their first language wasn't English. Okay. They, so I don't know if there's just some, I'm really going to show this person what it was like for me or what. Um, Again, I don't want to like barrage this whole episode with, you know, just that one particular thing, but it seems like a salient uh, example given what we're talking about. Um, do we one, want to go on to a place, Gothi and Lavasser? Oh, I, I got to stop now because I have one really bad thing. It's a do as I say, don't do as I do thing. Oh, yes. When I'm supervising a grad student, what I did with my both my theses is I know that the committee that is examining the thesis, their job is to find something wrong. Yep. Their job is to find something they can comment on. Yep. So what I did in both of mine is early on, like the first two or three pages, I put some a glaring gap in there where I left something out on purpose. That's brilliant. I should have thought and, of that. And both my supervisors are like, what are you doing? <laughs> and I'm like, no, this is, give them to they got to find something and I'm going to give them something right away. <laughs> so they had that. Fruit. Just give them, just throw the, uh, God, uh, the yeah. pedantic scrutineers, some red meat, uh, so they can feast uh, on you know those scraps, and then you can sort of continue on in a sensible way. That's a very, very solid approach, dude. And that's that's where it was at. Like uh, in in Australia, Dr. Paul Newhouse was my supervisor, and he's like, "What are you doing? Why are you leaving that?" And I'm like, "It's okay." And he's like, "No, no, no. They're gonna." And it's like, "I know. I want them to." And he's like, why? I said, look, here's the sentence I'm going to replace it with in the next draft. I've already got it addressed. It's it's already done. It's like, I actually knew how to write before I started this program. And so I know about a multi-draft process going in here and I've accounted for it. And and the shift in their, in some reviewers out of you, not everybody, but some reviewers once they find that thing to comment on, then they relax and they read and I get useful stuff. It's not all this nitpicky pedantic stuff. It's, 
okay, yeah. let's give some general. Here, here's, here, here's, here's the obvious now that I phew, as a reviewer, phew, justify my reviewer position by having a perceived gap or a perceived flaw easily noted. And then it's like, okay, now I can think about mowing my lawn after this and spend, you know, 20% of my uh, brain sort of just daydreaming and, and yeah, totally mad. Reduce the yeah. cognitive load of the peer reviewer. Good call. Yes, that's, and I've, I've worked with students and I've suggested it to them and they've all said, wow, they got way kinder later. And it's like, yeah, because <laughs> they weren't still looking for that thing. You had to give them the thing. They have to yeah. find the thing. You got to give it to them explicitly. In your case, implicitly and then explicitly. So practicing it like you talked it even back then. You went directly that's, into teaching, though. I mean, that's just, I, I spent, you know, my 20s mostly not, right? So, so, um, Abeles, Gofi, and Lavasser, if we may, my good sir. Yes. So, what's awesome is this is in the visions of research in music education. And I don't dip into music education too often. No. I did publish an article in dance education one time, but that was Fantastic. that was different. So I'm wondering how familiar you are with AFSESMM. Not even a slight amount. It was the first time I saw a very unwieldy acronym of that magnitude. AFSESMM doesn't roll off your tongue. Not as good as personal education infrastructure. No, that's much better. Yeah. Not quite that level. Okay, so for for the listeners, we did a whole episode on ridiculous abbreviations in education and what are we doing to each other. So this one is Applied Faculty Student Evaluation Scale for Music Majors. Good and Lord. it's like, oh, that does not roll off the tongue. But not what they put in list. it, what they put in that scale is so good. This is just... Oh. They they put it's like explanations are clear and concise. Method of teaching gives the student insight into teaching as well as performing. Flexibility, the structure, the instruction begins at the student's level of proficiency. Right? I was Unable going to that and I'm like, this is some awesome content. A very unfortunate so name, a very unfortunate acronym, but some awesome content there. It is so good. Communication, clear to the point, provides easy to follow instructions, takes things step by step, right? Provides specific lessons and techniques to practice each week. This is so fantastic. This is one of the best tools I've ever seen. I love it so much. Folks, that is some damn high praise from an educator of Doug's magnitude, okay? Yeah, I don't want to pat my own back, but I've read a bunch of stuff in the last 30 some years. And this was so good. I would like to hand this to people that are starting their teaching careers to say, here, this is how you need to reflect at the end of every lesson you grade yourself or review that. I'd like to just have a frame. I like the idea of like putting it in a frame and just kind of giving it to people to kind of just sit at their workstation when they're like, especially, you know, when they're getting up to go to class, look at it, come back, look at it. Did I cover this? You know, I would have been very helpful to have this on a mimeographed piece of paper when I was doing my educational studies back in the day, back in the uh, Mm -hmm. early to mid aughts. And, one thing I really liked about it is he or she is able to correct technical difficulties because when you're using technology in a class setting or an education setting, you're the person that has to correct the technical difficulties, whether you like it or not. You are the first point of contact for that. Even if you don't think of yourself as being a technician uh, to yes. perhaps speak to a former colleague who you mentioned uh, in, in, in the last episode, right? 
I don't consider myself a technician, you know, that's kind of beneath my dignity. Like, well, the teacher, the, the students in your room don't see it that way. They don't see that separation. They just see somebody who doesn't know how to uh, operate the uh, overhead projector is what they see or whatever. That is all they see. But I just loved how, how this, these music instructors or applied faculty got right to the point. These are the things you have to do. And that's what I love music for. This came from music. This didn't come from. These are the notes you need to hit. Yeah, yeah, here's your scale. Here's your, like, I love music so much. I have been such an obsessive music fan for, like, since before I was, you know, since I was, like, five years old, I I remember it. And I've never had any skill or competence or even particularly any interest in doing it. Um, Even when I was, like, in the band, in the junior high band playing percussion for three years, I was probably the least talented member of the percussion section I sucked at it. I stopped doing it once I got into high school. And uh, that's when I discovered punk rock uh, and life really took a turn. So, um, but like musicians, I mean, it's like, well, what even is it? It's, it's math. Music is yeah. math. And it's just, it's confoundingly, you know, it's, you can explain, you know, this particular note, this particular tuning produces frequencies which are pleasing or unpleasing and the listener knows in less right so that's awesome man good resource awesome resource yeah i was so happy when i i read that because i went through so much stuff and this one just jumped out and you know when you read a bunch of stuff and it's like, yeah, it's okay. I understand where they're going and you can skim it in five seconds. I got to that and I had to stop. And I had <laughs> to like dig in deep. And it's like, and I was I was a little in shock. I was like, wow, I didn't know I was missing this. <laughs> I didn't know that my life gets better because of that. I just, I really it's like it. And I'm not trying elements to on the periodic table. It's like, wow. Vibranium, who would have thought? Right? That's it. Like, they 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 put this together. And what I love is that they came at it from a different discipline, applied it to education, and it it works so well. Because this is how they think. This isn't mushy gushy. This isn't give on a scale from one to ten. This is can they yes, no. <laughs> it's welcome to music right it's like well i got 80 percent of the notes yeah that's horrible right i don't want to listen like that's go into the garage and get better at your instrument and then come back in that's i'm gonna i'm gonna give a shout out to the replacements on the husker do themed episode um one of their songs on their first record is literally called i hate music and the lyrics to this if i may since we're on the topic of music yeah. and instruction I hate music. Sometimes I don't. I hate music. It's got too many notes. And it's an awesome punk song that they wrote in a basement. And they just happen to sort of be able to put out an album starting when they're, you know, when they're 19 or 20 years old. That's the, the album is called Sorry Ma Forgot to Take Out the Trash, if you're interested. And uh, I Hate Music. Nice. Awesome track. Also, we're checking out their follow-up album, Kids or, or, uh, Replacement Stink, with the iconic anthem, Kids Don't Follow. I'm doing what I can, man. I'm using the resources that I got within easy reach of my brain. Um, can't all be Marcus Aurelius and educational theory. Jesus. No, but... I don't know any of that stuff. So that's awesome. So I get to learn it too. Now, the last article is Van Camp Cooper and Volman from 2022, teaching practices for self-directed and self-regulated learning. Can I try this word? Self-storing. Self-storing. I Self-storing? picked that quote because of that word. You're goddamn right. Pardon me. I but definitely did. Good Lord. That's fantastic. I love that word. 
can you tell me a little bit more about uh, the context here for it now, vis-a-vis the article? Sure. So, so this is a, a Dutch word about students' ability with self-management that they need in the future and its characteristic of learning processes in which students have a regi- regi- relatively large input and, and large responsibility. Sounds like metacognition, doesn't it? Kind of. Yeah, this is more, I think this is more focused Okay. into, into the education component and into here's the student responsibility and how in that article, it was vital that the students had clear direction. They needed to know where to head because so much of this was on them. They needed to know where they were going. Yes. And without clear direction, most of them would get lost because they're just developing that self-management skill. So you need to really direct them when they start wandering off. This this kind of flips me into not just the punk rock mentality, uh, but also to do with MOOCs, right? Um, I know that we're sort of in a post-MOOC kind of landscape and environment and whatnot. It's like, you did your doctorate on iPods in the classroom. I did mine on teaching and learning and social presence in MOOCs. I mean, you know, you're you're necessarily bound to a time-bound phenomenon uh, when you're doing those studies. And the MOOC phenomenon as such was largely characterized when Dave Cormier sort of first sort of of coined the term. It was um, to do with the so-called connectivist courses, right? Connectivist approaches to teaching and learning, so-called CMOOCs, within the wider nomenclature of these kind of courses and uh, particularly characterized by the work of Stephen Downs, uh, George Siemens. Um, but uh, with, I think of Downs as being, you know, he spent a lot of time doing work on connectivism, but I guess what, you know, studies around those kind of courses have said, I mean, it's, it's almost like choose your own adventure kind of courses where it's just like, you know, it's out there on the internet and the community brings in resources and, and does all this stuff. But like when I was studying this stuff, a lot of the uh, commentary from students or people who participated was the lack of uh, explicit structure. You know, a lot of people, the only people who really, you know, found enthusiasm or benefited, it seems, and I mean, I'm just speaking broadly, of the CMOOC, whatever, connectivist courses, it's like you go on the internet, you kind of, do a scavenger hunt or whatever, um, and then bring stuff back that's your own. But it, it's really like professional educators kind of were into it, but other people like just like, uh, like where's the structure? Like where is the explicit direction? Right. So, for instance, back in the MOOCs of yore. <laughs> yeah. Just as an aside, I did the iPod stuff after my PhD. I studied oh. online learning environments and techniques. That's that's what my actual. Thesis. I'm assuming okay. you've already read my thesis. Here. Didn't didn't you read my thesis already? I sent it to you. That that hurts my feelings. Did you send it, it to me? It I think it hurts my feelings. I, I well, don't care. <laughs> I, I hope you haven't read mine. Jesus. Anyway, not that there's anything wrong with it, but just like why? You know. I mean, yeah, I did read yours. We did it. We did an episode on MOOCs way back when, and I I grabbed a quote out of yours. This is how many episodes we've got in the can, folks. Where we are starting to lose track of, or I'm starting to lose track of, even some of the stuff we talk about. Okay, rad. I'll take your word for it. I'll go to the archive. Um, yeah, I have a I have a giant Google sheet with everything listed. Fantastic. Here's the topic. Here's the title. Here's the word of the podcast. I have all of that stuff in giant. See, that's a very good format. That's a very helpful format. Um, With me, I sort of tend to uh, hone in more on the process. And, you know, when it comes to like just doing stuff with, uh, you know, the images and stuff that go into the video, those unsplash pictures, it's like I pull them down, you know, I download them very specifically because each of them sort of I think is cool. But then what makes it unique is that when I sort of throw it into Camtasia, uh, the order that it is imported into is something other than what I, you know, downloaded them as. 
And I sort of let the technology just sort of dictate, okay, you know, um, this is the first one that's coming up in the Camtasia interface, so I'll just throw it in here. And, and that's what sort of, I like to think, kind of gives it a sort of organic and sort of structured, but uh, somewhat spontaneous. It allows for the impulse of the moment to work within a sort of format which is conducive to the overall enterprise, right? So as much okay. as we try and practice e-learning, you with your Google, Google Docs and whatnot, me with the Camtasia and media elements, we are really, uh, if it hasn't been clear to people watching the show, we're not just sort of these flippant people with cool T-shirts and cool tattoos and cool glasses um, and punk rock and, you know, boats and whatever. We actually have some stuff to say. And this stuff is pretty, pretty intentional in terms of how we put it together. So patting ourselves on the back here, bro. Yeah. Yeah. So we have those are all the articles that I took a look Zelf-string. at. Zelfstring. I just want to say that one more time. Zelfstring. Oh, isn't that a great word? Such an awesome word. Yeah. I okay, really man. Like that. So what else we got? So we have some pictures. So for <laughs> people that are listening, if you go to the website, we have a bunch of images that I have collected over the years. My digital clutter is there. Digital ephemera is better. You know, we're throwing in ten cent words. It's not clutter. Okay, I'll buy that. Ten cent <laughs> words. You'll buy that word for ten cents. And yeah, man. And the the one that I wanted to share is I worked at a place one time back before we knew each other. That was a miserable disaster for me. Not just for me, for a whole lot of people. And it came down to lack of clarity. And so I ended up across going the, back across the organization, to, you mean, or definitely in my department. Okay. But not just. Like it was it was that problem going across everything. And I went digging and I found what what a was it MI6 in World or the Office of Ungentlemanly Warfare from? Oh yes, oh yes, the uh, co- the first covert ops um, unit developed by uh, the British uh, and then subsequently used in the war effort, um, and uh, that's sort of the uh, basis for what became uh, the respective uh, Canadian and American uh, intelligence services. Yeah. And one of those organizations pumped out uh, like a pamphlet or a paper or whatever, a little booklet kind of thing. And it was for sending into occupied territory to say, here's how to make the war effort worse for the enemy. And it was about, and so much of it is, right? Like, if, if you're a manager in a plant and the enemy's taken over and you still have to keep doing your job, here's how to sabotage it, but not look like you're sabotaging it. And there's a whole list, right? Demand written orders for everything. A, hand, a handbook uh, made of pamphlets of uh, covert resistance operations, which you can try from your own workstation or home. Yeah. So we Radical. misunderstand Love orders, it. ask endless questions. And engage in long correspondence about whatever, right? Well, I currently work for a security organization. And uh, I really, in terms of the content, which I'm speaking to within my role, I, I mean, I've just absorbed so much. I'm still absorbing so much just basic security info um, because, like, my organization deals with public security pretty directly. So you got to be able to say to the people who are on the front line of people's public safety, right? Frontline responders, security guards, you know, like, you know, it's like all the theory and abstraction that gets you to the point should be sound. But at the end of the day, a slide with 10 bullet points telling you very specific procedures which you can action on immediately is, is really the thing of value. Right. So. Yeah. 
so so this crew back in World War II, they were fighting the Nazis and they were dropping these into occupied Europe and stuff. Number nine on their list was when training new workers, give incomplete or misleading instructions. Oh my God. So there you have it. We Brilliant. have known for 80 some years that this is the way to sabotage things. I've worked for people who might as well have read that. I've had a direct supervisor who I think may have just kept that in his drawer. And like, I know how to really, you know, except that's given him way too much credit intellectually. But anyway, <laughs> anyway, just say. Yeah. So yeah. I just wanted to point that out about how important clear guidance, how totally. important good instructions are. And conversely, the lack thereof can lead to fractured and exploding relationships. And that's one of the things where it's like when you're talking about like an organization or, I don't know, certain public Canadian institutions dealing with uh, learning, you know, um, it's sort of like, oh. Yep. What can you do? It's like it's like the, the thing about organi educational organizations that, you know, fail in the clarity endeavor. It's like you're not just bringing down one person. You're bringing down generations of people and bringing down isn't even necessarily pushing them down so much as it is just like you will not be given adequate instruction to succeed in this environment, nor will you be given adequate instruction to realize your full potential within this environment. And that's like the incalculable cost. You can go, well, replace a manager, you know, replace this and that. But if you're talking about like the whole, you know, like about the whole philosophy of a department or unit or institution or whatever, like if that clarity isn't there, I mean, it's the lost potential that is grading that's the part of it that really chafes. That's, uh, you know, the uh, the Beckett term. Uh, there's the rub. That's maybe it's Dylan Thomas. Sorry. Don't know if it's but Beckett it, or Thomas, but. The the waste. For me, yes. it's the waste. Lost it's, potential. Yep. And I look at like the attrition rates in, in institutions, like learning institutions, post-secondaries. And it's like, okay, what's an acceptable attrition rate? 15%. So one student in six is going to get accepted into a program and isn't going to finish successfully. And we're right. cool with that. Can't just that. be personal factors. There's got to be something else. We, yeah, we, yeah. we, we've quantified an acceptable rate of failure. Um, and we can just put that into our stat. We can put that into our algorithm uh, and sort of carry on and uh, compensate, you know, in other ways for the detrimental uh, effect on the business, right? The uh, FTEs or whatever. It, I don't know if you remember when there was a big thing with, I think it was Chevrolet. There was some sort of like airbag error or something, and they knew about it, and they pushed those cars out anyway because they said, until a certain number of people die and we have to pay out, I'm just telling you, money to change. The novel Fight Club, Chuck Palahniuk, um, yeah. the okay, and the movie David Fincher, um, brilliant movie, um, pretty good book. Uh, but the like, un, the nameless unprotagonist of Fight Club, like yeah. that is that dude's job. He like works for a car company, uh, and he like documents like the uh, effect of uh, accidents, quantifies it passes that information along to the employer and uh, then the employer determines like, okay, is this acceptable or not? And it's just like you described, right? Once it exceeds a certain dollar value to settle, then they have to do a recall. But below that, you know, it's like, is the settlement more than the cost of a recall? That's the, that's, that's the factor, right? Um, very much in line with what you're talking about here, pal. Yeah. And for me, I just, I don't think people know that across society, yeah, that's kind of a given. Yeah, we know a certain number of people are going to. An acceptable rate of fatality. 
it's like those idiots who are like driving those fully pilot, you know, those the uh, the the Musk mobiles, Teslas. It's like full auto. Let the algorithm steer. Like, are you out of your mind? Like, I don't drive. I would not get in a car with somebody who put the car on auto. I'm not, that's all I'm saying. Right? Yeah. Cool, the, man. The other part of my struggle is what we're doing in education, yeah. like in education faculties. And I, I realize we're done. We've, we've gone through a lot of the stuff. But in education, we know over years and years and years that 50% of the people that get a BED never teach a day. We also know that the, the percentage of people that teach for one year and then get out is also sky high. Off what are we doing? And the institutions have no interest in doing otherwise because like, well, we're getting paid off these enrollments. So, you know, we made our money. That's good luck to you. That's it. That, that anyway, so, man, I don't want to end it the... on a bad note because that article with that checklist, <laughs> the music. You're still glowing. You, you, you still got the post checklist. I do. Well, what do we got then for the word, the phrase, and the question of the podcast, pal, before we're wrapped up here? Okay. We have, for the word of the podcast, it's just clear. It's just clear. Make it clear. Why clear and not clear? Can I ask why the adjective, not the noun? I don't know. Just just, just throwing that to you. You don't have to. No, no. Now that I think, I prefer clarity, but I had clear down and I didn't want to muck you up with having to go back into the into no the man i got the i got the I, on my other browser that is in skype i've got the wordpress in edit mode so i'm going to switch out clear for clarity, for clarity. thank what you what do we got it's for just, this crazy oh, the question of the ahead, podcast dude. is how can we ensure educators are providing clear guidance to students awesome and the phrase of the podcast is randomly pedantic scrutiny Fucking A. I mean, pardon me, but randomly pedant. I'm typing that into the notes as we speak because the uh, educator in me loves that one and the uh, linguist, the cunning linguist in me <laughs> loves that one as well. I am a cunning linguist, I must say, as much as I can be, without a degree in lingualism. Okay, well, I'm happy. Are you happy? Me too. Me <laughs> I feel too, pretty man. good, at, actually. <laughs> we, we've kind of pulled that one out of a kind of a negative turn there. Um, got anything else you want to say here, bud? Or No, no. I'm, I'm happy that people are reaching out and saying hi. And I even had somebody answer one of these questions of the podcast. So I'm pretty pumped what? about that. That is so rad. Um, yeah. I got to say... That we we got just okay. So if I may, then before we really sign yeah. off, um, I guess I'm not. You know, it, we got a few more of the ed tech, the ed non tech conversations coming up. I've got about four. We 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 sort of did the one with Lee, I, and then I did kind of the one solo with Kara, um, and then I've got probably I want to say four people who have confirmed for me, which is to say they replied to me at least twice that they're willing <laughs> to do the conversation. Um, so I'm just personally really looking forward to um, expanding this format and bringing Absolutely. more perspectives into it uh, vis-a-vis these kind of conversations, as well as the typical pace of our regular sort of format, because the more perspectives on something, the better. And if you're in a position where you are disinviting critique, you are disinviting outside perspectives you are locked into accepting an algorithm for the acceptable attrition. If you were into like, like rationalizing certain amounts of failure to proceed in a business-like model, well, I mean, welcome to the podcast, and we appreciate you because you need all the help you can get, quite frankly. So that's mm-hmm. all I got, dude. Anything else? Final words? Final thoughts? That's it. I hope everybody has a lovely day and there we'll see you next time. You're absolutely freaking right. Bye for now. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.